I'm curious if this will translate with, with just me and a microphone. There, I, There's a party trick that I do where I make myself sound like a robot. By I, hello, I am very, 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 I am a very high-functioning robot here for your service. Please, I am in need of a charge. Please place me in the sun or into an AC outlet. Does that work? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Did you know you can sigh in an Australian accent? (sighs) Okay. Welcome back to Question the Self. This is Jedediah Jenkins. On this podcast, I talk to people that I respect, whose minds I'm obsessed with, and who usually I already know. I'm sure that'll change someday. Um, And we answer your questions. Although, guys, I'm running out of questions. Not because you didn't send a lot, but so many of the ones you sent back in April, I can't find them because Instagram messages only shows me things that are 30 days old. I don't know how to change that. So I think I I need a fresh batch. Today's episode, I interview Nada Alec. She is a writer, and she's on the precipice of blowing up, which I think is so fun because we talk a lot about having a public persona going from private to public. We talk about when she used to work for Vice, how she got a little canceled, and what that was like, and what made her pivot to fiction. I'm a, I'm a memoirist. She's a fiction writer. She sold her books to Knopf, which is like a prestige publishing house. And so we talk about that. We talk about how you go from thinking you might want to write to having the gumption to think you deserve an agent and a book deal and putting your thoughts into the world. We talk about parasocial relationships. And that is a one-sided relationship with a public figure that you feel like you know well. This happens a lot with podcasts or writers or things that like, or TikTokers or something, you know, like you think you know someone, you really do know them well, you hang out with them all the time online, but they don't know you. And that is a unique, interesting thing. We talk about how fame has kind of come for everyone with online publishing, with online identities. No matter if, no matter who you are, if you're still curating your life a little bit, you're, if you're a grandma, you're curating it on Facebook. And there is a public response to that. Someone you don't know can read that. And and that's kind of new. We talk about the concept of dopamine fasting, which is basically protecting yourself from dopamine addiction and dopamine overload, which then dulls your ability to experience joy. We talk about what if the um, muse, the artistic muse that visits the artist, what if your muse is an idiot? (laughs) We talk about how Nada got fired from a psychic healer. The the healer, yeah, that's that story's wild. We ask if Alan Watts should be disqualified as a wisdom teacher because of the way his life ended. We also talk about, like, why is Fran Lebowitz able to say whatever she wants and not get canceled? And when should someone be canceled? What, what are the criteria? I know, like, Everyone's talking about canceling this or canceling that. And I mean, it's so tired and stupid, but um, she has some really fresh thoughts on it. And so do I. She's just a great thinker of the modern moment. And I think you're going to love her. This is Nada Alec. 
Wait, are we recording now? Yeah. All right. Okay. Also, I wrote I wrote a couple notes down, so I might look at them, but I'm going to try course. not to. Yeah. Um. Hi, Nada. Welcome to the show. Oh my god, I'm so excited to be here. This is what a treat. I mean, I I can't believe I'm following. I listened to the episode with Ruthie. What an angel! And it was making me laugh because you guys were talking about death and how you were saying how you like pre-mourn your your mother okay so because my family were they were all here for my wedding and I kept having this thing where I would look at my family members while they were talking to me and I would just have these like elaborate funeral fantasies of that of them (laughs) oh my god (laughs) because I just love them so much that I I can't stop imagining them dead yeah it's horrible I don't know how to turn that off but (laughs) I'm so you're you're I mean Ruthie has written a book as well but I don't think she would call herself a writer per se she is but she fights that label I think because writing for her was so laborious but maybe that's just part of the part of the show but you whenever someone asks me like are you in the writing world do you have writer friends I'm like I mean yes kind of but really it's me and Nada like I know you're more (laughs) dialed than me but like I'm like, oh, that's, this is my writer friend. So I'm excited for us to talk about not only being writers in the modern moment where everything is so online. Not every writer is like that, but I certainly am. And processing the modern moment. I'm just like, you You are so good at it. And I. it's been so fun to track your journey from, you know, imposter syndrome to why would this person ever return my email to, oh, holy shit, it's happening? Yeah. I mean, you, you've you been such a huge part of that whole thing. Like from the first email I got from a publisher, this was way before I even sold my book. I forced you to uh, go to breakfast with me and I just asked you so many questions because you had been through it. So you've always sort of been this mentor, I guess, to me. And it's funny because, yeah, we both live in the writing world, but we are part of these two separate communities. Um, because I'm in fiction and you're in nonfiction, there is a little bit of a, a, a divide, but I think, you know, you can relate more than anyone about the, the, the torture and the, you know, (laughs) the boredom and like the ups and downs of like working with, you know, publishers and, and sort of, you know, the creative process. And then also this thing that I'm reckoning with, now which is like you know this is obviously like a soft launch of of my public persona in a way because it's like the first time I'm really like talking about my writing and my book and stuff and you know we've had a lot of private conversations about um yeah the artist and the persona and the sort of mystique of of the really private offline artist versus someone who's really public and that just totally fascinates me as I try to navigate it for myself, you know, because I think I, I don't know, I, I, I guess it makes me nervous to be uh, seen because there's a, there's a reductive element to, to being seen where there's a rigidity to it, where it's like, once you're in the public sphere, people, you know, they'll, they'll contain you in like a tweet form or something. And you're like, I'm constantly evolving. Like I have changing moods all the time. Like I don't even know what I think or who I am. And I, 
and I like the freedom to kind of, you know, exist within that. But um, there is something scary about um, allowing, you know, the public in. And I, I feel like you're, you're so great at that. And I love kind of watching you. Um, you've got this like really commanding presence and you kind of know what you know. And I'm, I'm figuring it out through my art, you know, like I'm still kind of grappling with a lot of things. I'm really curious. I, I'm changing my mind constantly. So there is this like fear of surrendering to like what other people think of me, I guess. Yeah. I would say there's a, an inherent difference in our art form because you are creating something that isn't exactly you, but it is born of your mind. And so that's a little different than a memoirist, whereas I am actually packaging me. Right. And so, and if someone reads my work, they're reading it with me in their mind. They're picturing me living. They're picturing my mom. They're picturing my friends. They're picturing my experience as opposed to a character in a situation. And then the mystique of who created this character, who put them here? How could they create this emotional moment? There, there is a built-in mystique in that that is different than what I do. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, yeah, I want to be mysterious. That's so sexy and cool. But I just really <laughs> had to learn that I'm not. Yeah. And there's something, because talking about public persona, private persona, fame, whatever, can f- feel very like echo chambery of an esoteric experience. But what I find so interesting is the modern moment of everyone experiencing fame in the sense where everyone that is online and has an online presence and at any level of curation, even grandma's level of curation where she's only posting her grandbabies mm-hmm. and her Christmas card and that's it, right? Or the opposite of somebody with a small, you know, personal intimate life oversharing online. Mm-hmm. I have an, a, a wild story from a f- friend of a friend was going through cancer. This is an older person. And she would write everything on Facebook, every treatment, every chemo, every fight with the husband, every this. And, you know, and the friends, uh, the, the peripheral friends would gossip like, wow, she's really oversharing. Like, I didn't need to know that. Or I think her husband's really mad at her for sharing that. No, 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 She's so overshares she shares that they go on vacation they get robbed because someone has seen a that she has pain medication opioids and b they're out of town so they rob and just like rob their house of all their drugs while they're on a short vacation because she's so online right yeah you know i mean worst nightmare i mean that's why i'm decidedly not famous you know (laughs) (laughs) it's uh yeah, and I I don't know. I feel like this is a really unique time for me, especially because my book's coming out in like a you know a few months from now or whatever, and so I'm in this sort of like precious space of possibility where it's like I don't even know. I I don't know how. Obviously, like I've heard a little bit about you grappling with that that time before everything was about to come out for you, and that was it. Sounded like it manifested as like you had these weird, mysterious symptoms right like you were yeah that was really I mean who knows it's like this is my decided narrative around what happened but the three months or two months before my book came out I got incredibly sick and ran 105 fever every day and sweat the bed and sweat through five layers of towels just to sleep maybe four hours a night it was hell and then I went to the doctor everything tested and then the book comes out 
and it's well received. Like literally in one week, every symptom just went whoop and vanished. Right. And yeah, some some of my more woo woo friends were like, "Oh no, that's your mind. That's your soul worried that this book is going to come out." I really think it's trigger from Invisible Children when we put our heart and soul in something, and then it yeah. blew up and went out of our control, and then people a certain section of people hated it and the blowback. And then that there was some sort of like PTSD around that where it's like, I put something out in the world that I think is well-intentioned, but I can't control how people receive it or talk about it. Yeah. And it might come and destroy my family or who knows what that I think it was psychosomatic. I mean, I think that's why I retreated into the safety and the ambiguity of fiction. Cause that happened to me early on. I was like a, I was working for Vice. This was in between Invisible Children. Um, and I, this was, I mean, I was like 21. Or I was, this was like early internet days. And um, I experienced my first brush with like being publicly shamed and canceled for this article that I wrote that was like, obviously satirical. Um, but, you know, out of context, I think... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people were, it was a listicle about like my favorite 80s. Uh, I grew up Croatian and I, I listened to Croatian music and there are these like really cheesy Croatian pop bands that I listened to and I did this listicle and there's this sort of uh, guy who's a national treasure, but he's also low-key straight up Nazi, right? And so I was sort of poking fun at him. Um, and it got in the hands of like people who just weren't familiar with Vice or just didn't have the context for it. And I was like getting death threats. And I was like, you know, 21. I, I just, wow. it was, it totally spooked me. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I didn't write for a while. I was sort of in the music world and, and nonprofit and stuff. And then once I found fiction, I, I was like, uh-huh, like this is a way for me to tell my truth in maybe a little bit of a more padded way where I have a little bit more freedom and, you know, I, I, I am trying to get over that, but it did, it was that early kind of sting for me and it really scared the shit out of me. So, but I, I don't know, it's interesting. Like I've been, I recently read this article, uh, Marina Abramovich, who's like famous performance artist, right? She was talking to Elena Ferrante and she's also famous for being the most private author. No one really knows her true identity. And so they were talking, they were having this conversation from opposite ends of, of this, of being super public and super private. And it was really interesting. I mean, Marina uses, she needs the public. She needs to feed off the energy of the public and the present moment. And she uses her body as has her art, you know, um, whereas Elena, she's almost suspicious of people who can really articulate their own art well. Um, and she's decidedly anonymous and, and, and wants to protect that sort of sacred art. She doesn't want her persona to bleed into, um, the art. And I think it's just a matter of like medium or introvert extrovert, you know, um, it's just different ways of coming to the same thing, but yeah, it's really interesting to hear them kind of talk about how for one privacy is essential and then how, for the other, the public is essential to create. And so maybe you're, you're like more in the Marina camp, you know? Well, I love suspicious of someone who can articulate their own art. That is so fun because, because as you know, writing a book, 
I think about the the length of a book, anything that's more than a pamphlet, your my brain can't hold it all at once. It's not like even a song. It's hard to you can listen to a song in three minutes and still it's like you don't you can feel it, but you can't really feel a whole book very easily. And so one of the fun things about putting a book into the world is you don't know what's going to touch somebody. You don't really know what the book is. You really don't because so many people are going to receive it in a way that was totally surprising to you. My job is to articulate. That's like what I love about my job. But I also love the artistic freedom and commission to not articulate it and just do things and like whatever the unique fingerprint of the way you express yourself doesn't need to be explained. It either touches people or it doesn't. It connects with people. It doesn't. It connects with you. So, mm-hmm. okay. Did you read the bad art friend article? Oh, I wanted to make this entire podcast about the kidney donation. <laughs> First of all, explain to the listeners what it is in case they didn't read it. Okay. So there's this woman, Dawn. She's a writer. She's, you know, kind of a part of this writing community. She donates her kidney, right? Super altruistic, incredible, super selfless. But she starts this Facebook group for people to follow along her journey and her surgery and that sort of thing. And uh, she becomes preoccupied with this writer who is sort of not responding or not acknowledging, you know. And I think she even goes to this writer conference and she was like, the most incredible, I mean, quote from that article was like, do writers not care about my kidney donation? <laughs> I was like, wow, um, the level of like the lack of self-awareness in this woman is is staggering. But it's a really interesting, you know, thing because uh, so so the writer who is sort of quiet and she is like, we weren't really even friends. She kind of took the story as an inspiration point and wrote this short story about a woman who donates a kidney and sort of a white woman who donates a kidney who white savior complex. Yeah. yeah, That kind of thing. And so her mistake was she took a letter that the woman Dawn, the kidney donator had written verbatim, which is, I mean, that was like her biggest mistake, I think just in terms of like plagiarism and, and Dawn. Was it an email or like a Facebook post? What was the thing she she posted the letter on Facebook or something? Yeah. And so John just became obsessed with the fact that this woman had written this short story based on her very personal journey and didn't really acknowledge and, you know, lawsuits ensued on both sides. And it became this thing of like, who has a right to tell a story, you know, which is something that I'm so fascinated by. But um, I don't know that the, the camp on on Twitter is sort of split. But I mean, obviously, Don doesn't look great. She she pitched the story to The New York Times herself, which <laughs> I love uh, Don. I'm so I don't know if I'm camp Don, but she's so hilarious. I'm so oh down. My God. I like read this Gawker thing last night where it was like um, a list of corrections from Don or something. She had written Gawker Obsessed. to be like, you got this wrong and this wrong. Yeah, I mean, it really, to me, it like just reveals how petty and annoying some writers can be. Um, it, yeah, gives us a bad look, I guess. But well, so, so there's so many things that like I can relate to that. I, I mean, that article was like so viral. And but it's funny because it's so special to me because I'm a writer and like yeah. I have written books about real people and like worried <laughs> that I was slandering them or worried that I was not doing it right. Whereas it's a little different in my world where like, if I'm quoting someone, that person is getting the credit for the quote, like Mm -hmm. full on, and it's actually them. I mean, I have changed names, but 
but then at the same time, I, like Dawn, the girl whose Facebook letter was ripped off and kind of mocked in this story in some way, right. she's, you know, trying to make it as a writer. And this other writer is taking her story and like mocking her and like getting accolades for it. You know, it was like a popular short yeah. story or whatever. And so she's like, I can feel also that tension of, okay, have your own success, but not at my expense. I'm trying to do the same thing you're trying to do. Right. Which, you know, that that like stings the ego. I mean, I find that to be very, have you ever had like your bad thoughts or something ripped off? Have you ever had someone steal from you? Yes. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable even talking about it, but it's happened a couple times. And it's bizarre. By someone you knew? Yeah. Oh. Someone who, and I remember her showing it to me and I thought it was sort of a writing exercise because a couple people had done that. Like, you've inspired me to do my own. And I'm like, I didn't invent this. Um, but then I saw it published and it was titled Bad Thoughts. And so I, I that was a little oh. bit weird. Yeah. That is weird. <laughs> Flattering, I guess. But Yeah. I mean, the close, the only thing I've had, it's a little harder to rip off like my memoir life story, but I've seen, I I saw a girl on Twitter just take one of my posts about friendship and post it like with no accreditation. How do you say that word? Accredited. No. Well. Too drunk. (laughs) Yeah. With no, (laughs) that's the champagne. With no whatever, crediting me. Yeah. And, you know, it got like 30,000 likes. And, wow. and see, that that's okay, fine. You didn't credit me. Fine. Like words are words. I didn't invent like words. But then people were replying to her saying, oh my God, this just changed the way I see friendship. Thank you so much. Your words are so powerful. And she's replying, thanks, babe, with like Ooh, a heart. Yeah. So then, so then I'm like, girl, are you okay? I wrote this yeah. and I like tweeted that, you know, I was trying to be like a what little happened? sassy. Did she take it down or? Yeah, she like. I mean, and then people were just like, wait a minute. And, you know, like the internet detectives were like, you know, holy shit, he did. And then they're posting the thing. And then she like made her account private and disappeared. But that was like, that's the only time anything like that has ever happened to me. And it was just very strange just to be like, it's flattering. Like, oh, wow. But also in this world, people can, there's receipts. It seems really hard to steal. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's another one of my fears is sort of you're inviting you're inviting the chaos. I think once mm-hmm. you become a public person and there's like this level of kind of almost psychic violence that you're subjected to, and maybe that sounds really dramatic, but you're seeing this trend of a big public persona sort of getting offline. So there's like Lana Del Rey deactivated her Instagram, or Lord is offline and. Uh, Michaela Cole, you know, these, these, these people who it's like, there's a level of privilege, I think that comes with not having to engage, I think. But it does feel like, I don't know, do you feel like there's a trend of people who are sort of like, you know, because I, I deleted Instagram for a week. Um, so as a, you know, authority, on, yeah, as know, an authority life, on the agrarian yeah, life, it's, it's, it's sort of like this toxic relationship, I think that you have as a writer, because I'm constantly trying to protect my writing time. And so I do realize, and I, and I started getting really into like dopamine fasting and not um, flooding my eyeballs with constant stimuli because I listened to one podcast that was like, you have this finite reserve of dopamine and you can just sort of waste it on these, the, the infinite scroll thing. And so I was like, oh, I want to reserve that for writing. So Wow, that's um, really convicting to me. 
yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of worth it enough to it's sort of like twofold. It's like, okay, you have this finite reserve and then it it takes a little bit to like build back up again. And then for every kind of high dopamine state, there's an equally low to 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 recalibrate, which I'm like, why are we built that way? What <laughs> like what a nightmare. Um but then also there's a baseline. So you don't want to fuck with your baseline too much of of dopamine. So um just trying to be a little bit more cognizant of that. Like I'm still kind of looking at Twitter a little bit and like, but I am sort of trying to have a better relationship to it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is hard as, as like an artist. Cause, and, and I did sort of, you know, watch my thoughts. I was like, wow, I, I, I don't know. I'm thinking a little bit more clearly after like day three or something, but then I always end up going back to it. So I haven't figured out a super healthy relationship to all of it it's hard, you know, like, what was it like Pete Holmes is like, you're trying to write on a porn machine, an infinite porn machine or something like your computer is just everything is there, you know, I mean, to me, it's the same thing as imagine trying to do a creative product, creative work at a house party. Right? Okay. Yeah. Everyone's at your house talking, they're laughing downstairs, they're drinking, someone just broke a glass, there's a fire that and you're like, I, how am I possibly supposed to like do anything except talk to these people? Like yeah. having a lot of stimuli is not new, but you, but it's, it's actually new to be in a constant state of being at a party. Totally. Being surrounded by people talking. Another thing that um, came to mind when you were speaking was I remember someone explaining the biological reason why being online feels like psychic violence is that if you really think about your life, outside of the internet, negative interactions are very rare. Mm -hmm. Like if someone cut in front of you at the grocery store, looked back at you and said, fuck you, dude, you would be traumatized the rest of the day. You'd think about it. You'd go home. You'd tell your husband. You would, you'd be like, someone said, fuck you to me today. Just because I was standing. What the hell? And it would, it would, if someone honks at me because I don't go on the green light fast enough. Oh my God. Like I'm traumatized. (laughs) And so what I'm saying is negative interactions in human society are incredibly rare and meant to be potent, which is why we really focus on them because social cohesion is so important to a social ape, right? So if, if there's a negative interaction, we focus on it. And what Twitter specifically or the internet does is allows us to rubberneck and like obsess over negative interactions and love to like, I love watching people get in bar fights, you know, like these, these like horrible videos of drunk people fighting. I could literally watch it on TikTok to the day I die. I think it's so bad and I just am dark and evil and I love it. Yeah. And like all that to say, we're not meant to consume that much negativity. And then if you are even remotely in the public eye and you're lucky enough, well, or unlucky enough to where you become part of the discourse. So that means there's people on both sides of whatever it is you're up to, or even your identity. That is an incredible dose of negative energy that most humans never feel in their whole life. Probably, you know, it's powerful even from a stranger. Yeah. And I mean, you're sensitive enough and you're porous enough. That's why you're an artist. Right. So it's like you have to. I think you have to protect yourself 
against that, you know. And I think that's why like I'm so attracted to to humor because I I do see the way that the algorithm rewards and favors outrage um and divisiveness and and trauma and that sort of thing and for me it's like humor has always been the salve, you know? Like yeah. It's just I don't know, you can couch so much truth in humor um, and you can say the difficult thing in humor. And that's why, you know, a lot of my writing kind of plays within that. And yeah, maybe it is also like kind of a self-protective thing too. Um, everyone is just, you know, really angry. And uh, to me, there's, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like a marker of enlightenment to see the humor and everything, or, or at least have an element of playfulness and, and lightness, you know, um sort of like that Ram Das thing of like can't you see it's all perfect which is you know kind of fucked up when you're talking about suffering and trauma and that kind of thing but um to hold that paradox like to hold that duality I think that's kind of what we're missing or what we're yearning for is a little bit more kind of lightness or or, or nuance in in the mm. discourse in the conversation yeah at least that's what I'm sort of like attracted to you know <laughs> You know, it's very like contentment is sort is an as a funny human emotion because it actually isn't really natural because mm -hmm. the natural entropy and danger of being alive requires us to have constant desire, desire for more food, desire for more safety, desire to make sure that our kids are safe, desire for more water, whatever it is. Like because it's contentment implies that what you have isn't going away and things mm -hmm. go away. And right. so <clears throat> I am very content with my career right now. I, 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 I'm, I try to like embody that in the sense of really meditate on what do I want? And I don't want to be in a constant state of wanting where I can never be happy where I am. It's, I guess it's very Buddhist or something, but, and like right now I have thousands of people who read my books and it's not so in the zeitgeist that people are reading my book that wouldn't want to. You know, like when something becomes so popular, yeah. everyone feels like they have to read it. And then you're reading this book and you're like, why did I buy this? I hate this, right? Yeah. Like, because it wasn't written for you. I feel like I'm still in that place where my book is only read by someone who recommended it to someone who was like, I know you will like this, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so, so then I have strangers reading my words and messaging me, writing me notes, writing reviews. And, and like, that feels very good. But I know I'm very much in the like, touring indie band who's like popular in their state, you know, the clubs are full of fans, but it's not like it's Wembley Stadium or something. Right, so it's like, yeah. I love that middle place. Now, can I afford a house? Maybe, in you know, in a southern town, not in California, can you know, there's certain I'm not like living large, but I'm living as a professional writer it's very 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 cool but you know sure I would love to be a little more in the discourse I'd loved more but I only have two books so it's like you have to have a body of work maybe but I remember hearing Elizabeth Gilbert talk about how Eat Pray Love exploded and then became so big that it was like everyone had a hot take on white woman goes to Bali you know whatever and her you know she had to get real zen because it was just so major and she was like it is such a privilege to have anyone talking about a 
piece of work you did to, to mm-hmm. be in the mix as a woman to write and put something in the world. And then people have thoughts about it is a privilege because most, you know, most people are looking around saying, does anyone know I exist? Right. And that, that was really, I don't know that, that sort of felt like some sort of vaccine in my spirit to, if that ever happens to me and people have hot takes about something about me, I'll be like, you know what? I need to be grateful that I did something worthy of a hot take as long as it's not like truly evil. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if you know yourself and you stay true to yourself, it doesn't really matter because it is such a privilege. I think that's what we went into this for. We felt really misunderstood. We wanted to express ourselves in the exact way that we wanted to, right? Through writing, where we editing and refining and like putting something out into the world that we're like, no, 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 this is, you know, who we are. Um, and I think that just like comes with it. I was like thinking about, did you read that book, uh, Big Magic, Elizabeth Gilbert's like book? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so hilarious because I've been thinking about like, you know, the creative process and she she says this whole thing and it's like, you just got to show up uh, and then your muse will sort of, will come when it comes and, and your job is as the writer is just to show up. And I've always thought about the role of the muse. It's like, do you think that there's any like muse out there that's just like a total idiot? That's what you got assigned was just like, <laughs> like this total dumbass like muse. Like we we assign sort of higher intelligence to the spirit world, and I'm like, what if your muse has like the worst ideas? You know, you're just like showing up, and you're like, that's okay. That that came to me. <laughs> that is like my fear. I'm like, what if my muse sucks? You know. That I think that's real because it's like picking the muse, yeah. I mean, because in a way, what are we talking about? Like we're anthropomorphizing zeitgeist timing, right? Like mm-hmm. you in the moment of you creating something. Well, maybe not, zeitgeist would imply that you you do something that is a surprise or is a hit publicly. Whereas you could say the artistic muse is you just got in the flow and churned out a short story or something that you're like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that. I'm really proud of this. And, you know, and it's no one ever reads it or something, but you're just really proud of your work. That could also be the muse. But I I think a dumb muse (laughs) only makes sense in the sense of if you if you created something and then the muse of the of the public thought and the zeitgeist is just wrong you know or you are on the you know like you wrote something that is just so on the wrong side of history or on the wrong side of the thing that everyone wants to talk about it like right that art friend you know like that's a that's like a dark muse or like a silly like jester muse that could definitely happen to somebody where you're like my earnest attempt became a public joke and execution right (laughs) like yeah and I mean, that's, that's always the risk that you take. And that's what I love. There was like a podcast episode that you were talking about. Um, make sure that the thing you love loves you back. And mm. so there is that sort of necessary element of the public engaging. I mean, it is an energy exchange. You kind of have to like gut check, you know, what you're doing. And I think like with a lot of the stuff that I write about too, it's sort of like even just this concept of bad thoughts, Right. I'm not going to land it every time, but I think that what I'm searching for is sort of like the deeper, 
you know, the, the unexpressed thoughts that I think that we all have. And I just started writing things down. Like, uh, do parents ever wonder what their adult children's naked bodies look like kind of thing? You know, it's just like, you're, you're trying to, because it's, I don't know, or, or like, you know, I wish a stranger would, uh, provoke me so I could retaliate in self-righteous rage. Like, I, I think that there's like, you know, or like do con artists love being referred to as artists? You know, I just like, I have this ever since I was a kid growing up Catholic, um, just always trying to question social roles and, and religion and that kind of thing. Like there's always been this deep well of like other people are thinking this too. And, and I mean like how validating when people respond, you know, yeah, it's just that to me is what I'm going for. That's the magic of, of connecting with people. And also like, I think you do this too, giving people permission, right? Like, permission to feel a certain way or you'll kind of put yourself out there and say the thing and 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 it allows it sort of diffuses things and it allows people to to say like yeah yeah me too and I think that's sort of the the burden that we carry not to sound so dramatic because it's like what we do is just so fun and like silly and we're not like like in a mine somewhere you know (laughs) right right, but um but yeah I think like I'll, I'll sacrifice anything for that I'll sacrifice like my reputation I'll, I'll be the one to look like an idiot because that to me supersedes that i wish i had that you know when i was a kid i, I wish i had someone who was especially a woman like who was like kind of just weird and dark and said the thing because i grew up with so, such like mild-mannered women who it just was so performative and i was like wait i was like reality is so absurd i mean like we're all gonna die and no one is talking about this you know it was just like so crazy to me that um that we exist at all and so that's just that's the like universe I want to live in is just like what the fuck is going on <laughs> yeah what was your journey to becoming now a soon-to-be published writer like because I know a lot of people I get a lot of questions around um how do I feel brave enough to put my thoughts into the world how and I'm curious what your journey to doing that was? Well, it took me a long time. I was a late bloomer. I started writing fiction at 27. You mm. know, before that, I was just sort of, you know, writing in other capacities, more journalistically, I guess, like obsessed with music, writing about music constantly. It took me a really long time to figure out who I was and, and you know, what I wanted to say. And And still then I was writing in private. I wasn't really... You know, I would make these zines with my best friend, Andrea, who's a painter. And, um, you know, I had this like naivete where I didn't really edit things. We would just kind of do these DIY zines and kind of distribute them. And now I'm they're so cringe to me. But I also it's really endearing that I did that and learned through the process of just doing a thing. I think that's really important. Um but it took me a really long time. I, I quit my job. You know, I had a job, an office job for, I mean, over a decade in different capacities. I worked in advertising. I worked for brands. I worked for nonprofits. And was um, your work always in the realm of words? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you were like a copywriter. So you knew you could like write a sentence. Yeah. But I really didn't. There are certain people that I meet where I'm like, my husband is a, musician and he's been in the same band since middle school right and I'm like god and 
and I don't mean entitlement in the, in the negative sense, but I'm like, you felt so deserving of, of greatness. And you just kind of threw yourself into art. It took me a really long time. I had to give myself permission to, to be a writer. And then once I did, you know, I quit my job and it was the first time in my life where I had unstructured time where I was like, you know, I was really dramatic about it. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) And that first year was such a learning curve for me. I started experiencing these, you know, crazy symptoms that I, at the time, did not connect to, I'm having an existential crisis about what I just did. Uh, I started hearing my heartbeat in my ears, which Mm. not cool. So I, you know, I went to all these doctors and you heard it all day. Yeah. It was like, you know, the blood whooshing in in your ears, right? It was like a type of tinnitus and it was right when I quit my job, you know, and I still didn't kind of put that together, but I was like, cool, I'm dying, I guess. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I went to- listening to to myself die. Awesome. Yeah. And I went to so many specialists. Like I went to, I got an MRI, I got CAT scans. I, you know, I really just sort of fixated on this um, thing. And, and, and then I, I started going into, you know, healers, you know, once Western medicine couldn't heal me, I was like, uh, bring on the psychics, you know, Uh, I went to this like body healer. (laughs) She like spoke to my dead ancestors with like a tuning fork and was like, you know, doing this whole thing over my body, this Reiki kind of thing. And, um, and then once I got up after a really emotional kind of like two hours, she was like, I've never told anyone this before, but, um, like my spirit guides told me I couldn't, I can't ever see you again. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God. Are you kidding? I was like, devastated I was like do am I just riddled with like demons what's wrong with me you know and and she was like this has never happened before I consulted my teacher I don't know why you know horrifying right so I already am just like I'm doomed listeners Um, my jaw is on the floor I I cannot (laughs) believe you got fired by a healer I got fired by a yeah body healer a spirit guide literally literally spirits in the clouds are looking down being like this is not this irredeemable Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, she felt so bad, too, because, you know, she, uh, you know, some like kind of higher profile friends that go to her that, you know, they've had these incredible experiences, breakthroughs. And so I think she felt bad. She was texting me for a couple weeks after that, just being like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, whatever. This is so cynical of me. I'm a little it makes me smile when my evil bad thought rises. This is in honor of your bad thoughts which is the idea that if there is no spirit realm and we're just like Carl Sagan molecules, you know, the amazing get out of jail free card a spiritual person like that has to just, if they don't want to do something, they blame their spirit guides, which is just their thoughts, which is just their brain. And they're like, so sorry that almighty spirits told them something. I mean, this happened all the time in the Christian world growing up where, Right. You know, somebody would be dating someone and they're like, I think God's really calling me. And it's like, no, bitch, you just want to date someone else. You know, whatever. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying that spirit guides aren't real, but I'm saying if they aren't real, it's hilarious. I don't know if she felt some kind of uh, skepticism in me or something, because I partially 100% believe in the occult and demons are real. And, you know, it just 
all of that. I'm like half of me, I'm all on board a hundred percent. 50% a hundred percent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's just sort of growing up in religion, kind of standing with my arms crossed in the back of the room being like, I don't know about this. You're, you know, like I grew up in a religion that literally thought that they were drinking the blood of their savior and that, and they were eating the body of, you know, that's, uh, that's transubstantiation, right? Yeah, yeah. That's like, we didn't, yeah. we, us like Southern Baptists, we didn't believe it was literal, but it, even just the metaphor is wild that like everyone just accepts that we're doing that every Sunday. It's like, yeah, blood, ew, right. Flesh. <laughs> What? No right. one's looking around saying like, I, I remember the thought exercise of bringing someone who has, because, you know, growing up in the South, every single person I knew was Christian, except yeah. for Timmy Raceon, who was Muslim. And I found that to be fascinating and amazing. But every single person I knew. And so the thought of someone who has never heard of Christianity doesn't know what that is. And they, I'm like, come to church with me. And then we're e drinking blood and eating flesh. And like, everyone's doing it and waiting in line to do it. And they're just like, um, I have to go. <laughs> okay. So healer, wait, we're talking that. about okay. your, yeah. So, and I went to craniosacral. I mean, LA is just rife with people waiting to take your money. Right. And, yeah. and that's not to say they were all scammers. Like I had some pretty insightful, you know, mm -hmm, tarot mm -hmm. readings and, and that kind of thing. So I don't want to like completely discount it, you know, but I was searching, I was seeking and I didn't really, it took me a while to get comfortable, I think, with with identifying as a writer. And I had to go through this like nonlinear kind of very expensive uh, journey to get there. Um, you know, as with like any great story, it's like the truth is you find out that it's just within you. Right. Mm. And you kind of have to accept that. And so once I did that took me like a year, I was you know, I was writing, but I was also kind of just um lying on various tables, uh, getting auras read and that kind of thing. So, um, but I, I think a lot of it came from like, I came to literature as an outsider. I didn't grow up reading classics. I think there was maybe just the Bible in my house. You know, I grew up in a Eastern European uh, immigrant household. You know, I, I grew up on TV. I grew up on like the Simpsons and like SNL and like, mm -hmm. yeah. So that, that was like how I started but I will say, you know, I had this inferiority complex about like, well, I don't have an MFA and I'm meeting all these really smart people and, you know, they seem to have it all figured out. And I, you know, would go to these residencies and I would start meeting these writers and I would just kind of put myself in that world. And what I realized was like all of these people who are so, they come off as really intimidating or they're so self-assured and they're like, well, you have to do X, Y, and Z. I would say like be suspicious of those people because they are energy vampires and they feed off of your fear. You have wow. to just go with your gut and believe in yourself, you know? And it took me a long time to realize like the purity with which I approach this specific medium is a strength because I'm not writing in what we typically call like an MFA style. I don't know what I don't know, but that allows me to engage with the mystery in a pure and wild way. And I think that's so important. Um, you know, I think, especially because writing veers so academic, I think a lot of people think that they have to 
you know, go to this school, go to this workshop, that kind of thing. Um, but because in so many ways I was self-taught, there was a certain magic to, you know, discovering a book on my own without somebody, you know, telling me this is the book that you have to read. Um, to me, it became a lot more, I don't know, spiritual in a way. Like I, once I decided that I was writing this book, it was almost like I was building this shrine in my mind and I was collecting, I was collecting experiences and people and books and music and art. And I started picking up on all these patterns that were happening around me and these signs that I was kind of moving in the right direction. And I'm so glad that I did it my own way. Um, it was so incredibly validating once I actually sold my books because you live with something in your head for so long and you're like, is it just me? Like, is this a real thing? And then, you know, you, you, you do want that validation, I think from the industry and, and that kind of thing to, to give you permission. All I wanted was a seat at the table. I just wanted to get my foot in the door and I wanted to just, yeah, that was really important because it's the difference between a hobby and a career, I think, to, to, to be able to sell something. And that's all I needed to gain that momentum. You know, I'm like, just let me do this. I'm such a super fan of long form articles. So like the New Yorker, mm -hmm. the Atlantic, New York Times Magazine, like whenever someone writes a really long article, I just gobble it up. And I've just recently become such a super fan of Autumn, which is the like audio book version. It's like an app you pay $5 a month for it. And you just get to listen to them read all the best long form articles of the month. Autumn, mm -hmm. you should sponsor my podcast, by the way, someone listening. Because <laughs> I'm like, literally, I'll talk about it forever. And I, I guess I'll do it for free. But think about it. But like, I'm obsessed. And one thing I noticed is because they, they use, a, there's some repeat readers, like some of the readers are just really expert readers. And so they, and I noticed like the authors will change, but the reader doesn't. And, and there's a certain, I don't know if it's MFA style, maybe that's like in the fiction world, but like, there's a certain long form research article, like tone that the New Yorker and so, and it feels almost like the authors are interchangeable. Like I feel almost no fingerprint hmm. in there. Whereas a David Sedaris article is just like so fingerprinty, you know, it's him. Yeah. And, and then I was reading the, the Adele covers from this month, the um, Adele interviews of her, like doing her first interview. And both of those authors were very in the article. Like I felt them and yeah. it was very American and very British. And they were like, even though it's about Adele, they were very much taking up space in the room. And I liked that because mm -hmm. it just felt so real. And right. so there's a certain, what I was gleaning from what you were saying is, because I'm similar, I never studied anything. I literally write like I talk. And I find that, you know, if you find that people are engaged in conversation with you and people crave your thoughts on things, you're probably also a writer because if you just write the way you speak, it's already engaging to people. Now, of mm -hmm. course, there are some super introverts who don't speak and they're excellent writers, right? But I think you and I almost went in a similar direction in the sense of the way in which we express our thoughts and communicate is very natural and just our fingerprint is on it. And that is engaging and interesting and feels like you're getting into, into someone else's mind. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's something that I, I try to encourage people to do. I've never done like a, a residency, like what, 
what does that mean? And how do you get, how do you get to go? Yeah. I mean, you can just apply, you kind of have to figure out there's certain newsletters and stuff that, you know, will tell you submissions are due for whatever. Um, But I was new to it too. And I didn't know what to expect. And I think the best part of going into those spaces is it just to me reaffirmed, like, I know what I'm doing. And I needed to interface with, you know, people who were a big deal in that space to recognize it in myself that I didn't need. I didn't need anyone to tell me that. But sometimes you do need to go through that to see that, you know, and I always gravitated towards like the more misfit writers who didn't go that route. I mean, I have friends who did go that route and I think they're geniuses and I worship them and I wish, you know, that I had that grasp of, of craft, but, but I do, I don't know, you you seek out your own kind of tribe sort of immediately in those spaces, you know? Um, I think you have to go through like a bunch of stuff to realize what you don't want to do in this world. You know, like I realize like, I probably don't need to go to another residency. Um, I mean, I loved meeting other writers, but uh, my biggest takeaway was like, you have a right to, to, to feel confident about what you're doing. It's obviously resonating with people in this way. Like, that's why I love doing readings. Like I'm doing a reading tomorrow and it's almost like, like a stand-up set for me or something, you know, like I, I'm on this mission to make readings not boring. Cause I don't know if you've ever been to a reading before. Nightmare. I mean, I've sort I mean, of done them, but it was more like a, I'm like you, like I want to make an audience laugh. It's literally oh. the best feeling in the world. So I get up there and just go nuts. Yeah. And I think the thing is a lot of writers, you know, they're introverts and they don't have that performative element. So they're just verbatim kind of <laughs> quietly reading their thing and everyone's just sort of like trying to get through it. And <laughs> I'm always trying to subvert the form <laughs> You know, because I'm like, this also can be fun, you know, yeah. let's make it fun. You know, I think that's the energy that I want to bring to it. Um, I don't know. I think that's why some of my favorite artists are sort of unconventional and don't kind of go through those more like traditional channels. Like that's who I kind of worship. And one word that you taught me that I'm obsessed with is parasocial relationships. Yeah. And what is your experience with like, knowing someone because would you say parasocial is uniquely internet or could it be through their writing and their books or like well define the term and then what's the state of parasocial relationships in the modern day i mean parasocial relationships have been going on since there were public people kings and queens absolutely yeah i think it's more amplified in the space of podcasts because is there anything more sensual or erotic than like someone speaking into your ear. Like there's nothing more intimate than that. So I do, and the, the repetitiveness of it every week, same voice, same thoughts, you really start to develop this one-sided relationship with the person on the other end of it. Um, and, and yeah, I definitely have parasocial, I'm in a, plenty of parasocial relationships with podcasters who have no idea who I am and or artists um you know where i feel like i know them you know and i it's interesting i have i have this i wonder what the responsibility is of the person who is kind of feeding into it like um 
you sort of say all of these intimate things to all of these people that you'll never meet, of course, they're going to internalize it. And of course, they're going to feel like they're a part of your kind of journey. Uh, I think the, the danger is they kind of, there's these expectations of you that, that come with that. Like, for example, like Alan Watts obsessed, right? Right. Uh, he's a Buddhist teacher. He's dead, but uh, you know, I listened to a lot of his lectures throughout the years and that kind of thing. And my husband is like, um, well, you know, he died of alcoholism and it kind of just like, I don't know, it undermined his lifetime career of like being this sort of spiritual guru because it's like, well, if he can't even live out these things that he said, why should we listen to him? You know, I don't see it that way. I think he has maybe a harder time, but it's interesting the way that people want to put you on a pedestal. Uh, I mean, it's a very human thing, I think, to revere people, but then also uh, tear them down. And so that's, I don't know, I guess that's just like the risk that you run. But I think there is a bit of a fair trepidation around finding out what happened to Alan Watts because he is like a philosopher wisdom teacher. And so to also be like a reckless, I mean, listen, this is a parasocial relationship. I don't know the truth. I've, you know, read his books and his Wikipedia page. Right. But like, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it is hard when someone is seemingly a moral teacher, although his teachings were very like universal acceptance of all, which then the more sensual nature of like, hedonism and abuse and just being what you are without that that does feel somewhat aligned but you know i can totally see how here's a perfect example i was on a dating app and this guy came up you know cheesy grin there's a little bit of a face tune going on and his bio said i am a relationship expert and love coach and i'm looking at his face tuned face and i'm like so I have so many problems with this. I, I can't deal. Like, yeah. what are you doing here? I don't know. It was just like, I don't, I cannot, I cannot believe you. Like, or like, yeah. you know, if Oprah was just like a horrible person. Yeah. I'm fascinated by these one-sided relationships. And I mean, my experience being, you know, a memoirist and, you know, writer of my own life is I truly trade in that. That is actually my job, is to make people think they know me and to identify with my story and my thoughts. And now I've got a podcast, so it's even worse. Yeah. And so if someone thinks they know me, they do. Like, they, they I really do. try to be my fullness of myself. So if someone comes up to me and is like, I feel like I know you. Like, I know you. I listen to your voice and an audible, like, for 12 hours on a road trip. To da -da -da. And your mom, and I love your mom. And... And I'm like, wow, you really do know me. Like, that's so cool. And and because I feel the fullness of how I express myself, I actually love it. Because now, you know, and I, I, I think about this a lot as I lived with such fear up into my 20s of someone knowing the real me and them finding that out. And it's a gotcha moment. And then now I am rejected from the community because they found out I was gay or this or deconstructing my Christianity, whatever. So now when people know me in the way that I've presented in the public and they love me or accept me, that is an, in, that's a hug from the universe saying mm. you are not alone. Like you are not abandoned. Like you thought you would be. Yeah. And I think the gift 
that you're giving them is almost bigger than whatever kind of self-sacrifice of, of risking. It's more important that you give them permission through what you're doing. Like the amount of healing coming from that is almost supersedes whatever drama, internet comment stuff that you're going to go through, right? That's exactly how I feel. And like living in and spending as much time as I have in LA surrounded by actors and singers and stuff, they have a harder go at it. And this might come to you depending on how the level of mystery that you curate for yourself <laughs> by just being dopamine res reserved <laughs> is, you know, someone sees an actor that they love from a TV show and they don't really know the actor. They know the character. So they might yell the character's name and they might want a photo, but there isn't like a strong connection there isn't like a realness there. It's actually them projecting some art that they consumed onto the person that is not related to them. And then any deviation from the character or, or their imagined version of that person and the real person becomes, oh, so-and-so was such a bitch, so rude. Yeah, like, yeah. oh my God, I thought they were going to be so nice or I thought they were going to be like this and they weren't. And that that is a tense way to live. And I can see why certain people, specifically in LA, struggle with that in a way that I don't. Right. Yeah. And knowing you for what, like 15 years, I can attest to, you know, whatever parasocial relationship people have with you is pretty accurate with who you actually are. <laughs> you know, like there is no distinction. But I think the danger in talking to you that I was like kind of nervous about was there's something about your presence that makes me want to tell you all my secrets like I'm just like ready to give you my you know social security <laughs> number I'm just like <laughs> gonna tell you everything whereas maybe you know with someone else I'll, I'll be more sort of self-contained and it's like I think you and I both really like you know like friendly bullets I mean mm -hmm. what a well-oiled personality like the consistency of that it's like she knows who she is and she's been this way her entire life, you know, what do you think? Okay, so she is famous for telling it like she is saying what she actually thinks and like, being scary in that way. But then to me, there's something about quote, unquote, telling it like it is, which often gets you on the wrong side of history, because you're saying something that makes people laugh, that is like, then deemed to be actually really cruel or ableist or whatever it is. And she right. always seems even in interviews from like the eighties, I'm like, she was right then. And she's still right now, even though she's like scary. How does she, it, what is that? Oh yeah. I want that. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of knowing yourself um, and sort of being steadfast in it that I think it's so it's an attractive quality. I think we all kind of want that. Um, I'm still trying to figure myself out. You know, I feel like my, opinions on things keep changing as I absorb more information. But I guess like, I don't know, for me, it's like, I, I like living in that nuance of just not knowing. Um, mm -hmm. To me, there's a lot, there's a lot there. I think especially now with people getting canceled and sort of living in this binary of right and wrong. Um, a lot of even my work kind of plays with like nuance. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe the best thing I can do is sort of present that I, I don't know, or that I'm, you know, evolving and that's, and that's okay. You know, I don't know, but 
these iconic people. Like, I've been on this total Marina Abramovich kick lately, and it's like she's also so consistent in her stories. There's a repetition that that she's she's just got it nailed. I, I you know I've watched so many YouTube videos of her, and she's saying the exact same thing. And uh, there's a power to that. I think the self mythologizing. Um, I don't know. People really like that. I think that it's sort of like, you know, this is my brand. This is my thing. This is what I'll always kind of be, you know? Well, especially if you know that part of your job is a one-sided parasocial delivery. It's like, if you know you create things for public consumption, it's probably really healthy. And maybe what I do is less healthy, but it's probably really healthy to understand that people see you in a way, in a parasocial way, with distance and yet the illusion of intimacy that creates a fantasy in their mind. And if the more that you can understand that they don't know the real you and they don't have to, and you you construct what they see in a way, maybe that's really a a healthy way to protect yourself Mm -hmm. from over-dependence on public ideas of who you are. Yeah. I mean, even the podcast conversation is performative. There's an element mm-hmm. of performance um, in anything where there's sort of like an audience involved, you know. Um, but I love poking holes in, in the performance. Um, I, yeah, anyone who sort of like believes their role of like, this is who I am, you know, um, I feel like it's my duty and my job to kind of shake someone out of that and I don't know maybe it's like doing acid or something it's just like uh we're all just sort of you know what Ram Dass says like god in drag right right you know like there's a porousness I think to everyone's personality that I'm constantly like wow you really believe that you're like this you know cop or the stay-at-home mom or like you really like drunk the Kool-Aid of, and I'm like, all my life, I felt like a, you know, a 70 year old woman trapped in like a, you know, I was like 20. I always felt like really uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, I had this like, you know, the side swoop emo banks. And I was just like, I never felt like it was me. And I still, I'm getting closer to this concept of my insides matching my outsides. But um, we're all just sort of like playing, I think. I don't know. But don't you find that, okay, well, I have so many things to say. One, do you know people, some some of my younger friends and my very online friends, you know, because we're all learning in real time how to be, to leave a digital trail that is like everyone has endless receipts. You know, we're that lucky millennial moment where we actually grew up as little kids without it and then it came a little older so we experience both sides we're, we're we're almost digital native but we're not and so some of my friends have like really young siblings or even kids or whatever and they're like constantly deleting their social media like they'll post something and then it's just gone like mm. no post lives it's up for whatever and it's they've almost readjusted to the social immune system of like what it is to like say things, try things out, and then realize, oh, that was actually a bad take, or that was actually problematic, I'm going to delete that. And they just automatically delete things after a week. You know, you go to their Instagram, and there's only four photos. And the last photo was posted last Wednesday. And I'm like, where are your other photos? And they just delete them. 
but it's like, that's a degree of self-consciousness, you know? I mean, like, don't write a book then. Uh, is there anything more, you know, physical and material than... But that's like, what are you using social media for? What Are you using it just to communicate with your friends and be funny or whatever? Well, yeah, that doesn't need to live forever. Mm -hmm. Not all language, not all speech needs to exist forever. Sometimes you're making a joke that's like a bad joke and you're just feeling wild and there's too much alcohol in your system. But like... It is a funny thing, and I know that it's, I hate the word canceled. I hate the word woke. It's like so fucking bankrupt, all those words, because everyone is so stupid when they talk about it. But like, what is your take on when someone should be canceled for what they did 10 years ago and when we should be like, no, people change. Like, they do. Like, that was dumb, and now it's, we should believe them when they say they're sorry. Right. Well, now I'm going to get canceled for having any kind of take on this, but, um, <laughs> you're allowed to say you don't even know you're just living. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that there should be some sort of, uh, process of reconciliation. I think that that's what we're lacking in the, in the cancellation, uh, journey <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, I, the horror of who, who I was, I mean, five years ago, even I, or, or, you know, when I was a teenager, thank God, none of that lives online. I was an embarrassment until five minutes ago, you know, like I, totally. um, so yeah, I think it's like, a. I feel like the pendulum is about to swing in the opposite direction a little bit, um, where we're going to maybe reach this boiling point where everyone's been canceled in some respect. And that's interesting. Yeah. And it sort of diffuses it and loses its meaning. And we're all like, you know, we are all broken and learning. And I mean, obviously there's people who are horrendous and should, should be kind of punished for that. Um, but I'm always, I've always been more the, the camp of, of humanizing the person on the, on the other end, because I mean, the, 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 the violence that we inflict on, on someone is often an inability for us to like confront and integrate our own shadow in ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, like people who are preoccupied with even QAnon, I'm like, you guys are spending a lot of time on pedophiles. Like you want to look at that? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, mm -hmm. what is your obsession with someone else's shadow? That is really interesting to me. And I think that comes back to like this concept of bad thoughts where it's like, we all have the shadow, you know, like the badness lives within us. We have to reconcile both. You know, a lot of our desire does not compute or it, it doesn't match up with our sense of morality. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, we all have kind of like these dark thoughts that, that sort of betray our sense of like who we are. And instead of kind of repressing that or suppressing it or kind of pointing the finger at someone else, it's like, it's recognizing that that's a part of the human experience. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you act on it, but we absolutely all have those instincts within us. And, you know, the thing I'm like, so into, you know, neuroscience and, and the fact that like the psyche largely operates in the shadow, like we don't actually know so much of what's going on in our brains or why we make decisions or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's so, you're a mystery to yourself. You, you don't know wow. why you do or say certain things. And so um, 
I just don't think that the, you know, flatness of the screen of the Twitter of the, like, even just like the design of it does not lend itself to the depth and sort of the texture required for nuance. So it's, you're just kind of seeing like, this equals this, this is bad, this is good, you know, Um, and we're sort of training our brains to kind of even think that way. Whereas I think you just need to get offline and recognize, you know, like, sometimes you're depressed sometimes you're horny sometimes you you have violent thoughts you know it's like (laughs) that's all a part of it so okay this has been so fun my god (laughs) so okay tell everyone who's publishing your book what it's called when it's coming out okay so my first book is coming out next july um it's called bad thoughts and it's a collection of short stories and i'm also working on a novel um and they're both coming out with Knopf uh, and Vintage Books uh, for Bad Thoughts. So uh, total, what a dream. I mean, can you even imagine? Like, I I don't know. I just, wow. yeah, I love them. And I, I'm just so excited and freaked out and scared. And, but I mean, yeah, you were there throughout the whole thing. I kept like trying to get advice and like texting you about like, it's it's so funny, like the, the writing process is uh, years and years of silence. And then in a week, you have to figure out your entire, you know, you have to. Yeah, it's just funny how it goes, but. But it feels good when it goes, baby. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I remember people being like, it's not going to change you, you know, to get a to get a book deal. And I'm like, bitch, that shit changed me. I mean, that was so validating. You know, and people are like, it's not going to be as good as, you know, and I'm like, nope, there was a shift. There was an internal shift for me where I was like, all right, time to get to work because now I have, you know, my foot in the door and I don't want to fuck it up. So, well, there is, that's a profound thought where we were talking about how people label themselves. Like, you really think you're this cop. You really think you're this mom, but it, there is a light to the shadow of like limiting yourself with a label, which is when you really understand that the you deserve a label that you've wanted like writer and you've been validated for it, then you also want to step towards the fullness of that label. Maybe you're like, I am a writer and writers write and writers, you know? And so instead of just a hobby, you like feel the label over you, which I guess is the, is the potential light side of what could go so wrong (laughs) yeah i mean and and i'm on contract for a second book so i'm just like day one i was like (laughs) i was like better get started on this bitch (laughs) um yeah yeah okay okay nada i love you i love you this was so fun and ugh, what an honor i'm obsessed i'm obsessed with this podcast i'm obsessed with you i'm yeah so oh Thank you for letting me be a part of this. So much fun. Um, yeah, hopefully no one cancels me, but you know what? I accept it. I surrender to the masses. Well, thank you, Nada. That was incredibly fun. And 
I don't have a question to answer this week because I couldn't find any. They're so deep. I have all these messages. I'm not complaining. I am so popular. So popular. But for real, I couldn't find any. They're so buried in, in the shit. So I'm going to have to figure that out. Maybe I'll have y'all email them to me. That seems like I'll be able to find them. I don't know. Anyway, thank you. Love you all. TTYL.